Hello. Today we are going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. The setting is a great gathering of Israel for the very special occasion of the dedication of the temple that has taken seven years to build. So let's begin to read from 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. So here in these opening verses, our attention is focused on the transportation of the ark of God from the city of David nearby into the temple itself. It is a truly momentous occasion. And strange as it may seem to us, God has chosen to, to link the manifestation of his presence to this gold-plated wooden box, a box which was 1.3 meters in length and 80 centimeters high and 80 centimeters wide. This sacred ark, this box of the covenant, was built shortly after Moses came down from spending 40 days with God. The ark of the covenant contained the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone. And we find all of the instructions for the building of the ark of the covenant in Exodus 37. We read that Bezazel made the ark of acacia wood. And verse 2, he overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out. Isn't that amazing? We sometimes concentrate just on the outside, but here the inside of the box and the outside is plated with pure gold. And verse 7, and there were two cherubim on the lid of the ark. This was also known as the mercy seat. This would be the place where blood would be scattered from the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And as I mentioned, there were these two golden cherubim on the lid of the ark. Cherubim are not cute and cuddly creatures as they are sometimes portrayed or how we use that word sometimes in the English language. Cherubim are, are heavenly creatures, fearsome, because these are the very same creatures that were put in the Garden of Eden to make sure that Adam and Eve couldn't return to the tree of life. So cherubim are, are Amazing creatures, unlike anything that we have on earth, but they are heavenly beings, and they are always linked to God's throne. And that's why there are cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and in the most holy place in the, in the temple, there were two huge cherubim guarding, as it were, the Ark of the Covenant. 
Really, just as God had on one occasion revealed his presence to Moses in a bush, in fire, in a fire that didn't consume, so now God has chosen to let his presence be revealed above the ark, between the wings of the cherubim. This is the meaning of the term Shekinah. The word Shekinah is not actually found in the Hebrew Bible, but the rabbis used the term often. And the word Shekinah means the dwelling of God. It refers to that place where God would manifest His presence. And it was here that Moses used to have his quiet time in the tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant was. And after being in God's presence, his face would literally shine. And we read about how he had to cover his face because it was such an awesome sight to behold. So the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, was central in Israelite worship. The Ark is present in many of the key moments in Israelite history, when the priests are crossing into the Promised Land, crossing the Jordan River, as their feet uh, touch the Jordan River, the people that are carrying the ark, that is, the river stops flowing. Before the walls of Jericho fell, the people marched around the city of Jericho with the ark of God. When the covenant was renewed and they stood on either hill, uh, the, cover, the Ark of the Covenant was there. It was always carried around in a very special way, carried with wooden poles and always hidden under a veil made of badger skins and purple cloth. And even the priests and Levites were not allowed to look at the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure you know that famous story. One day the Israelites were even foolish enough to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. I suppose they felt it. They, need, they felt they needed some extra power that day because they'd recently lost a battle to the Philistines. It was a foolhardy decision. And in 1 Samuel 4, we read about how the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines. And then somebody comes up with the suggestion, let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Verse 4, they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, Israel raised a great shout so that the ground shook. This then deeply disturbs the Philistines, and they say, oh no, we're in deep trouble here. You can save us now. But we read in verse 10 that the Israelites were defeated and they fled to their tent. There was a great slaughter. And we read that the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons 
die. So things didn't turn out too well for Israel when they misused the Ark of the Covenant by trying to take it with them into battle to give them victory. One thing we learn from the Old Testament is that God's presence was to be treated with great reverence. Things went terribly badly for the Philistines after they'd stolen the Ark of the Covenant. They knew it was something important, so they put it in their temple. And when they woke up in the morning, they found that their god Dagon had fallen over and broken in half. Later on, they were inflicted with tumors. And so they said, come and receive your ark back. And that is how the Israelites got the ark back from the Philistines. It was too terrible for them to have it in their midst. There's another interesting story, which I'm sure you know, of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And one of the oxen stumbling and Uzzah reaching out his hand to touch the, the ark so that it wouldn't slip off the, the cart and fall to the ground. And God's anger broke out against Uzzah and he died in that place. And David sulked about this for many months and then didn't bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And then he found that another man, Obed-Eden, was greatly blessed because the ark was with him. Anyway, so here we have the amazing arrival of the ark of the covenant into this beautiful temple that Solomon has just built. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. They've all been summoned into Solomon's presence at Jerusalem, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes of there, and the chiefs of the Israelite families. And they're going to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. Verse 4. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting, and all the sacred furnishings in it. We learn more about these sacred furnishings that were in the temple in chapter 7. We read in verse 48 that Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple, the golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, the menorah, five on the right and five on the left. And there were other things that were used in the temple, a basin, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers. We know from Hebrews 9 in the New Testament that later in the ark there was also Aaron's staff and uh, also a gold jar of manna that they kind of kept as a, a souvenir, as a reminder of their long time in the wilderness being provided for by the Lord. But by far the most important thing about the ark of God was that it was the locus of God's presence. Let's continue to read what happened. Verse 5, King Solomon sacrificed so many sheep and cattle 
that it can't be recorded or even counted. Verse 6, the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. Here's a picture of what the scene may have looked like. And what happens next is truly amazing. After bringing the ark into the most holy place, we read this. 1 Kings 8 and verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple. The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, so much so that nobody could go in and conduct their duty because the glory of the Lord was so present. If we turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, there is a a secondary account, a parallel account of this event. And there we read this wonderful prayer that Solomon prays. 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 40, he says, Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. I'm sure you, many of you know that lovely worship song, O the glory of your presence. And I've heard it sung with different lyrics. I think people aren't sure always which lyric to sing because Sometimes people sing, Lord, arise from your rest. And that would imply that that God is asleep. But I think the the better translation here and what we should sing is, Oh Lord, arise to your rest, to your rest. The temple and the place above the Ark of the Covenant was to be God's dwelling place, His resting place. This is where the Shekinah glory, the dwelling of God, was among humankind. And 2 Chronicles 7 also tells us that when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offerings. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. So they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and worshipped, saying, He is good and His love endures forever. It's interesting that God's presence and His glory is represented here by a great cloud. We know that cloud has often signified God's presence in the Bible. 
Remember on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 when God is about to reveal himself to the people and enter into the Mosaic covenant with them. There is, we read that a thick cloud was over the mountain, a thick cloud representing God's presence. And the whole mountain trembled violently. You'll recall too that Israel was led in the wilderness by a a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. The fire by night, the cloud by day. You may also remember that at the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus is glorified and, and, and becomes radiant. Again, there, there is a cloud that envelops them. And a voice comes from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. Also, at the ascension of Jesus... We read in Acts 1 that he is taken up into the clouds and a cloud hid him from their sight. Sure, it may have just been a a cloudy day, the day Jesus ascended back to heaven. But there's also great symbolism in Jesus disappearing into a cloud. The clouds have long symbolized God's manifest Presence And even in the revelation of John in chapter 14 and verse 14, where when John sees Jesus, he says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head. So even now, Jesus is pictured in heaven and there is cloud, there is cloud. And so it is not surprising that we should read that when the presence of God arrives in glory with the ark in the most holy place, that there is a great cloud that fills the temple. It is an amazing manifestation of God's glory and of God's presence. Let's read on now about how Solomon dedicated the temple with prayer. 1 Kings 8, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, in front of the whole assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth below, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. In verse 28, Solomon stresses that God is a covenant-keeping God. And then he stresses that the temple is to be a place of prayer. Verse 28, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. The temple was always meant to be a place of prayer, of communion with God, of encounter with God. In this whole prayer of 
of Solomon. There is, there is a great theme of, of prayer. Let this temple be a place where people can come and pray. When they're, when they're sick, when they're tired, when they're at war, when they're disasters, may they be able to come to the temple and pray. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer, including for, for all nations. Here's verse 37. When there's a famine or a plague, when a prayer or plea is made in Israel, hear from heaven your dwelling place. There's also a lovely mention of foreigners Verse 41, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Isn't that a wonderful reminder that all people are welcome in God's house, that God's House, the temple, and, and our church today is to be a place of prayer for, for all nations. May this be a place where people come to learn what, who God is, what God is like, and may they encounter God here. It's also a place, Solomon prays, for God's people to be reconciled to God. In verse 46, we read these words. And when your people sin against you, and there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies, and pray to you towards the land you gave their fathers, towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayers and their plea and uphold their cause. It is also interesting that we see that Solomon recognizes that God's dwelling place is still in heaven. Elsewhere, Solomon asks the question, what, what temple could contain your presence, Lord? And the dedication of the temple ends with a blessing of the people. Verse 55, he stood and blessed the whole assembly. And then amazingly, they have a two-week-long celebration. Verse 65, after the dedication of the temple, after the glorious arrival of the Ark of the Covenant, after the, the wonderful manifestation of God's Shekinah glory, the people celebrate for two long weeks. We read they celebrated before Yahweh, our God, for seven days and seven days more, 14 days in all. And on the following day, they sent the people away. 
joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and the people Israel. So we've considered the the purpose of the temple and the functioning of the temple under the old covenant. This great temple that Solomon built was completely destroyed in the year 587 BC. 2 Kings chapter 5, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 25 gives us all the, all the detail of the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. The book of Lamentations captures for us the emotion of the period. You may be wondering, well, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? This amazing container with the cherubim, gold-plated, where is it? What happened to it? Well, there are five different theories that have been put forward about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. The first is that it was destroyed or it was plundered, it was looted. Maybe it was melted down and the gold reused when the Babylonians sacked the temple. Perhaps it was carried away as plunder into Babylon. We know there are those great artworks showing plunder being carried into Babylon. The, thirdly, the, the The second book of Maccabees, chapter 2 and verse 4, suggests that some devout rabbis, seeing that the temple was going to be destroyed and that Jerusalem's walls were going to be breached, wisely went and hid the ark of God, and it remains hidden to this day. Uh, That reference from Maccabees Uh, says that the ark was hidden in a cave on Mount Nebo. There are two more unusual theories, and the first is that the ark of the covenant is now in Ethiopia, and there is a church there that claims to have the ark of the covenant. Another theory is that the ark is in southern Africa, that the Lamba people, Uh, have a tradition that they have the Ark of the Covenant. They referred to it as the voice of God, and they claim it is hidden deep in a cave in the Dumge Mountains, their spiritual home. But the point here is that this great temple that Solomon built was destroyed. This wonderful Ark of the Covenant is no more. It's gone missing. And it was destroyed because the worship of the people was not sincere. And God eventually judged his people and they lost their temple. They went into exile for 70 years into Babylon. And only after 70 years, when the Persian king Cyrus gave an edict that they may return to Jerusalem, that they were able to rebuild a temple under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So how should we feel as Christians about the fact that there is no temple any longer? 
that the Ark of the Covenant is missing? Should that worry us? Should we feel deprived? Is our worship of God somehow inadequate or or lacking? Is our experience of God's glory any less than theirs was? These are serious questions. It's good to remember that Jesus prophesied the destruction of the second temple. In Mark 13, when the disciples are remarking to Jesus about what an awesome temple it is, Jesus says to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Think of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. They're discussing worship. And she says, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem, the temple. And Jesus replies, very interesting, and the temple was standing at this point, and Jesus says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Why is that? Because something better is here. Something significant happened when Jesus died on the cross. That thick curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was an act of God showing that the entrance to his, his presence was open to all. It was a sign that God's presence would no longer be found in the most holy place. Are we worse off than those believers that could worship near the Ark of the Covenant? Should we as Christians hanker after the rebuilding of the, the temple in Jerusalem? Is that a goal we as Christians should have? Listen to what Rabbi Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Look after your body. Treat it well. Don't sin with it, Paul says, because God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Quite amazing, these words from Paul, reminding us that we now are the temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians 6, he writes, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And we as individual Christians are today the places where God dwells by His Spirit. The Shekinah glory of God is in each one of us who are filled with the Spirit. Perhaps we're a little bit like the Ark of the Covenant. Nothing special on the outside, although it was plated with gold, but still just a beautiful box. 
But inside and above the ark, there was something awesome, the presence of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is why our faces should shine if we are believers. We, we should be radiating the glory of God, His, His presence from within us. Here's another verse that makes this point. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here there's a comparison being drawn between the old covenant and what went on and the new covenant in which we share today. Paul writes, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, in letters on stone, came with glory, so much so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory fading though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. Friends, one day, if, if those of us who are believers, we're going to be glorified in heaven. And even in this world, the Spirit's work in us is to renew us from one degree of glory to the next. We should be reflecting the Lord's glory because we are the dwelling place of God's Spirit. And corporately, we also are a temple. Ephesians 2 and 21. In Him, Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6 for we are the temple of the living God. Friends, as a Christian, we shouldn't hanker back after the temple. We are today the temple of the living God. Individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And corporately, we are the temple of the living God joined together in Him. The passage goes on, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So how can I conclude this message today? There are just a couple of points I want to reiterate. Here they are. Number one, as with 
the temple of old. We are today, individually and corporately, the locus of God's presence in the world today. That's what I've just been talking about. We don't need a temple in the world today because individual Christians are like that temple. The church gathered together is like that temple. There God's presence is in the midst, inside of us. We all with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Lord, let Your glory be seen in us as a church and as individuals. May it please You to display Your glory in and through our lives. And secondly, the temple represented the mission of God into the world. Foreigners were meant to come, and the message of the temple was meant to go out to the ends of the earth. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. You know that wonderful vision that Ezekiel has in chapter 47 of the water flowing out of the temple into the world and bringing life, bringing healing, bringing fruitfulness. That's now a picture of us as individual Christians and as a church. We should be moving into the world on mission with God, bringing the life of God into the world. And finally, the temple was to be a place of intercession and of prayer, a place of mediation between humankind and God Himself. And so it is with us and with the church. We are, we've been given by God the ministry of reconciliation. And we are to be mediators, intercessors, to stand in the gap, as it were, on behalf of this world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who's reconciled us to Himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of carrying your presence, the privilege of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being temples of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you make us new creations, that the old is gone and that new comes. And we thank you that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next until one day we will be perfected by you, Lord. And we pray that you would continue this good work in, in all of us. And help us to realize, Lord, that that we're to fulfill the mission your temple had. We're to be 
the place where people can meet God, can learn about God, can discover God. And may we be individuals in a church that takes the life of God to the ends of the earth. Lord, as Solomon dedicated the temple to you that day and your presence filled it, right now we want to rededicate our lives to you. And we say, Lord, come and fill us with your presence. Come and dwell in our hearts. Fill our bodies with your Spirit. And dwell among us as a people. Thank you, dear Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you.